Today is the 5th of June, 2021, and this is the first day of our five-day hybrid session. People participating online and uh, also at Chapin Mill. And this talk is being recorded uh, in New Zealand and will be will be sent overnight to to you all. I'm going to take up a little text that um, is a, a kind of a Zen classic. It's called An Experience of Enlightenment by Flora Courtois. And we'll be looking at this probably for the first two or three days of the session. And many of you may have read it. Uh, Roshi used to uh, recommend that people starting on koan work uh, read this text. And it, and it is um, a classic and very inspiring, but also possibly in some ways misleading. And so um, it might be helpful to, to revisit it and uh, um, just look at some possible perspectives on some of uh, what it, what it um, proposes or what it says. And we're going to start off with um, the introduction, uh, which is um, from Yasutani Roshi, Roshi Kaplow's main teacher. Um, he appears in our ancestral line as Hakun Ryoko. So we'll start with his introduction. In the summer of 1968, along with Soen Nakagawa Roshi and several other persons, I made a visit to Zen Mountain Center at Tassajara Hot Springs, California. And, of course, uh, Soen Nakagawa Roshi was um, another of uh, Roshi Kaplow's teachers, his first, teaching when he, first teacher when he went to Japan. So he made a trip to... Zen Mountain Center at Tassajara Springs, California, located deep in the mountain wilderness of central California. This Zendo is an approximately eight-hour drive northwest from Los Angeles and a four-hour drive south from San Francisco. Leaving the Los Angeles Zendo at 9 a.m. on July the 9th and pausing to rest a couple of times, our party arrived at Tassajara a little past six in the evening. During the last two hours of our drive, the car climbed a narrow, precipitous and sharply curving mountain road through forests so deep it was difficult to imagine anyone's ever having walked there. From time to time along the road we caught glimpses of deer and squirrels. In the sky far above, hawks drifted in seemingly motionless circles. From its highest point at 5,000 foot level, the road then descended down to the four or 500 foot level into the secluded Tassajara Valley with its natural hot springs, waterfalls and rushing streams, old trees and stone buildings. Here in this valley, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, who came to San Francisco from Japan more than 10 years previously in order to give guidance in Zen, 
with the help of his American students and the support of other understanding donors, has established the first Zen mountain retreat in America. Even now, the work of building up this mountain center continues. Altogether, the property, including the hot springs, valley, and surrounding mountain terrain, consists of 120 acres. This mountain temple is called Zen Shinji. Prior to this trip, Flora Courtois had been for some time a member of the Los Angeles Zen Center, of which Reverend Maizumi is in charge, and had been practicing Zazen regularly. It was she who offered us the transportation and who drove her car to take us to Tassajara and back to Los Angeles. Because of her kindness, we were able to visit Tassajara without any difficulties, even to enjoy a bath soaking ourselves in the hot springs. Shortly after returning to Tass- from Tassajara to Los Angeles, accompanied by Nakagawa Roshi, I went to New York for the opening dedication ceremonies of the New York Zendo, following which Nakagawa Roshi left for Israel and I returned to Los Angeles. A few days later, Mrs. Courtois telephoned to ask if she might come to relate to me a personal experience. It was on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock on July 16th that she came to the centre and I listened to her talk for well over an hour through the interpretation of Mayazumi Sensei. Although not fully described as in this book, what she told me was essentially the same. She began with a description of her growing sense of doubt concerning all things as a young girl. She went on to tell how she began to confront the question, what is the ultimate reality, while attending college, of her search for a solution through reading the works of many philosophers, of personal visits in quest of help to several priests and professors, of how all this was in vain and how she was finally referred to the college psychiatrist. But everywhere she searched, so little serious attention or understanding was given to her problem that she began to feel isolated from the rest of the college community and fell into a vortex of endless searching thought. Several vision-like experiences occurred to her. Um, just one comment here. Um, it's it's telling that um, her her spiritual searching was not not really registered or recognised, and that she was sent to the to the um, university psychiatrist treatment there's a lot of um, discussion had been had here here in New Zealand I don't know if it's the same thing in the states around mental health especially the mental health of young people over this past year and into this year Uh, one wonders whether at least some of those young people may not have similar questions and in fact be in the midst of a spiritual crisis rather than a mental health crisis. But our, our secular, materialist society really um, can't see these crises 
um, they don't they don't they don't fit into the into the worldview, so to speak. In fact, of course, it is it is um, healthy and sane to have these questions, but unrecognized and unresponded to when they are not put into context, they could easily turn into forms of mental illness. Think of um, what T.S. Eliot said, um, in a world of fugitives, the person taking the opposite direction will appear to run away. He continues, These experiences of her youthful life extended over a period of several years until at last one day, sitting alone in her bedroom on the edge of her bed, absent-mindedly gazing at a nearby desk, she experienced an extraordinary event which resolved all her doubt and filled her with an inexpressible joy and delight. I think this is one of one of the things that I latched onto when I first read this was hearing that this experience resolved all her doubt. What what promise there seemed in that. But I wonder if it isn't isn't uh, a little bit of hyperbole from Yasutani Roshi here. to turn to a passage from a wonderful book called Illuminating Silence. It's um, a chronicle of uh, two sessions that Master Shenyan gave in Wales. And um, his host in Wales was uh, someone called John Crook, who um, was became his uh, Dharma heir, his first European Dharma heir, but had a background in, in uh, I think, philosophy and psychology. And so um, it addresses some issues around uh, realizing koans and other things. It is, it's, it's very incisive and very clear and helpful, I think. And so I'd like to turn to, to um, John Crook's in, introduction to the, the section of the book, which is, uh, also gives the title of the book, Illuminating Silence. He's talking about practice and breakthroughs. This is what he says. An enlightenment experience, Jan Shin in the Chinese, Kensho in the Japanese, is a discrete event in which all self-concern falls away and the practitioner sees the nature without any filtering by egoistic interests or dualistic conceptualization. The event implies 
that there is an innate, an innate basis of mind, the nature simply obscured by the ignorance of self-concerned thought and feeling. It is often a supremely life-changing moment, opening the practitioner to a mysterious selfless world of great brilliance, vividness and depth. It gives rise to a direct insight both into ignorance as a source of human suffering, implicit in the self-preoccupied activity, in self-preoccupied activity, and the existential fact of an alternative vision. It may also give rise to a profound compassion for all sentient beings. For those with a conceptual understanding of Dharma, it is an experiential confirmation. However, such experiences are rare, usually of short duration, and followed by the re-emergence of self with a renewal of doubt and questioning, but based now on a mind that has seen and which therefore continues training from an entirely fresh, revelatory basis. Most records suggest that even great masters only see the nature a few times in their nonetheless transformed lives. So I think this is a more nuanced um, description of what generally happens, is that the, the, um, the, our doubt and questioning, unless it's a very deep experience, uh, re- return, but that we can now work with them from a different standpoint, from from greater understanding. He continues, When enlightenment is used to refer to a state or to to a developmental process, it usually implies that an individual has surpassed some threshold to reach an irreversible condition, Kai Wu in Chinese, in which wisdom and compassion are conjoined in a stance of benevolence towards all sentient beings. So here we could say he's talking about a more thoroughgoing experience, what we would usually use the term satori for. The schools of Buddhism differ in their emphasis on wisdom and compassion and with respect to the time taken to reach such a state. Some schools believe that many lifetimes must pass before an enlightenment arising from repeated training can occur. Others believe enlightenment can arise within one lifetime, given an appropriate history of practice and good karma. Some schools think that bodhisattvas are enlightened, others restrict this label to Buddhas. Master Shingyan has said that in an enlightened person, the functional ego is replaced by the skillful means arising from wisdom. This um, question about whether it's sudden or gradual is pointing to, of course, you can see it from both sides. There's both a gradual um, unfolding and sudden insight, and then more gradual um, uh, integration after the sudden insight. He continues, Many people are confused 
in thinking that enlightenment as a state implies some continuing ecstasy of bliss and awareness such as may be experienced in Kensho. This does not appear to be a correct understanding. The fully enlightened practitioner may be said to be one who lives from a perspective of wisdom understanding, which functions without ego concern under all circumstances. Such a realized person lives normally in the world, simply lacking habitual self-concern. He or she will have a mirror-like quality in which others see themselves rather than seeing the reactivity of ego in the one before them. A brief enlightenment experience may be the origin of such a condition, but the majority of such experiences are not followed by the persistence of enlightened state, of an enlightened state. Rather, selfish vexations return, but with reduced vigor. It may be that some individuals develop a capacity to generate the experience of selfless bliss. Others may find themselves there more frequently, but for most, the condition is a short-term blessing. Since the experience does not endure, the emergence of the state of being of enlightenment, an enlightened person, further practice is the essential norm. Uh, this, this is a very important point, uh, that, that in, in a certain kind of a way, um, Kensho um, is, is a, a new beginning. And and there's an there's an ongoing process of of unfolding enlightenment. He continues. Yet there is another way of envisaging this condition not so much as an experience, but more as a form of knowledge. In the Tsao Dong tradition, enlightenment is said to be no different from practice. This view focuses on the meditative fading away of categorizations of all kinds, time, space, self, until a residual nothingness is discovered in which everything is nonetheless mirrored. Such an approach does not, therefore, emphasize the sudden experiential revelatory aspect of enlightenment, but rather the discovery of an underlying condition of mind implicitly always present. To know this state is thus more a type of knowing than an experience of insight of limited duration. Some may argue that this Sao Dong Soto approach is the more mature perspective, and it is the deep view of silent illumination. So we could say this is this is um, at the at the other pole of of experience from from a kensho, but even kensho itself, in some cases, it's more sudden. In some cases, it's more gradual, or at least gentle. We could say it may be. Uh, Reading this text and others, we could come to the conclusion that it's always some kind of highly dramatic thing. But um, it can also be like uh, mist clearing.
He continues, anyone who has seen the nature is unlikely to claim to be an enlightened person, even when a master has confirmed the experience. He or she simply knows what a glimpse of enlightenment entails. Indeed, anyone claiming to be enlightened is probably acting erroneously from an inflated ego, which a teacher has been unable to contain. Simple humility alone will normally prevent any such claim. People may consider another person to be enlightened on observing an exceptional being who seems truly to have transcended the vexations of this world. It is doubtful whether there are more than a handful of such persons alive in any one generation. Some may become great lamas, masters or teachers. Others may remain entirely unknown except perhaps to a few. So, uh, yeah, it's important to... um, Keep our our little insights in in uh, um, perspective. Continue with Yasutani, his introduction. This was the turning point. As her awareness deepened over the succeeding months, effortlessly all her problems and uncertainties were resolved and her entire attitude toward life underwent a radical change. Even her physical condition improved and she rapidly gained needed weight. Again, this was um, uh, this, this drama, these dramatic changes also wore off, and she struggled later on, as we'll see when we get to her account. However, when she tried to relate what she described as her experience of open vision to her professors at college or to the college psychiatrist, she met such a blank lack of interest and understanding that she finally concluded that there was no one to whom she could try to describe this experience with any hope of recognition or appreciation. She then resolved never to speak of it again until she was confident such a person had be found had been found. And that person, of course, was um, Yasutani Roshi. Since that time, over 25 years ago, until this morning of July 16th, she had not spoken of it again. I learned that she had continued her life first as a student, later as a psychologist and writer, as well as a useful person in her community, and all along at the same time as a busy housewife and mother. Above is the briefest summary of our original talk. Although more than 25 years had intervened, it was obvious she vividly recalled every moment. Throughout her talk, I carefully watched and observed her. Her facial expression was very calm, with tenderness but without harshness. My total impression was of an individual quite natural and serene. 
Listening to her talk, I instinctively felt that to test her experience was unnecessary. That experience she had over 25 years ago was still vitally alive today. Immediately, I verified that the experience was a very clear Kensho. At the same time, I recommended to her that she practice Shikantaza with more diligence. I pointed out that the further one penetrates into the ocean of Buddha Dharma, the more one deepens one's realization. So I repeatedly emphasized to her the importance of renewing her determination to practice further because our Buddha nature has the great function by which illumination is deepened endlessly through practice. Uh, There's a footnote um, to Shikantaza, definition of it, I guess, says Zen practice without supportive devices such as breath counting, characterized by intense non-discursive awareness. Characterized by intense non-discursive awareness. Um, Elsewhere, Yasutani Roshi describes Chikantaza as a practice only to be done for short periods of time because of its intensity. And he he says even that um, one sweats when doing Chikantaza, even in the wintertime. I was puzzled a bit over this this reference in, in this text of Yasutani Roshi's to um, the tension in Shikantaza. Maybe it's maybe it's a mistranslation, but maybe not. Um, again, in the same uh, book we've been reading from, there is um, a placid passage about these two. Practices the practice of koan work and shikantaza, which it, it uses a term which I hadn't heard before, which um, helps helps a lot in understanding this um, this uh, intensity that uh, is mentioned in this footnote. So here again, it, this time it's Master Sheng Yin talking. And he um, starts off talking about um, gongan or koan practice and then uh, compares it to uh, shikantaza. So there may be um, useful um, material in this for both people working on, on koans and on uh, shikantaza. He says... In using the gongan, which is Chinese for koan, we usually focus on just one saying from the story. This saying is the huado, the nub in the koan. We use it like a kind of lens to peer closely into the mind. Yet it is not an intellectual process. We are not saying, for example, who am I or what is mu in order to pile up descriptions or to elaborate theories. To tsan, the huado, means to look into it, 
to peer with the mind's eye rather than with the mind's reason directly into the moment of experience that is happening right now. So this new, experience, this new term that I hadn't heard before um, is tsan. And uh, he, he goes on to explain what the meaning of this, this word is. So to look directly into the moment of experience that is happening right now. Tsan. Description takes time. It accumulates, piles up. Tsan has no time, for it occurs in the durationless present. It is a bear looking into the space of the mind, like peering thoughtlessly into a goldfish bowl. There may be movement, sunlight glinting on the scales of the fish, but there is absolutely no conceptual examination. There is merely the bare observation itself. It goes on and on. The huado is, as it were, merely the target set up for you to aim at. Furthermore, although it may have the form of a question, the mind cannot make a quick intellectual reply. The usual sort of clever response is quite short-circuited. A fuse is blown somewhere. Such looking generates a great doubt, a doubt that becomes so intense that the mind automatically comes to one place, totally immersed in the paradoxical unresolvability of the huado. You are lost in the huado. When you are totally lost, that is tsan. When this intensity of focus is long sustained, suddenly the whole mass of doubt breaks down and dissolves. That moment is enlightenment. Nothing can be said of what is there then. It is beyond words. But then he goes on to say something that's quite illuminating of, of what Shikantaza is. He says, There's also another metal, method that I do not usually recommend to beginners. It requires a measure of prior practice. This is the silent illumination method of the Tsao Dong School. Silent illumination, Mo Jiao, is the Chinese name for what became Shikantaza in Japan. This is the silent illumination method of the Tsao Dong school, advocated particularly by Hongzhu Zhenjue in the 11th century. This was the method favoured by the great Japanese master Dogen, who took it to the country, to that country, where it is known as Shikantaza. Actually, it is probably a very ancient method going back to the times of the Indian ancestors. You might say it is Tsan without the Huado as a target. So this direct looking, intense direct looking. You sit gazing silently into the experience as it arises. Hong Zhou said of it, in this silent sitting, Whatever realms may, be, may appear, the mind is very clear as to the details, yet everything is where it originally is, in its own place. The mind stays on one thought for a thousand years, yet does not dwell on any forms, inside or outside. In this method we let the mind go quieter and quieter, immersing itself in its own silence. It is like allowing the water of a pool to become utterly still. Every speck of mud drifts to the bottom and the water is crystalline in its clarity. 
This crystalline clarity becomes enlightenment naturally and without effort. Like the method of Gongan, this is a wonderfully direct path. So as you see, no knowledge, no attainment. So the same direct looking in koan work and in shikantaza is just in in shikantaza there's not um, any kind of support coming from a huado or the breath or anything. You sit gazing silently into experience as it arises. Especially, I think, the, the connection or the, or the if, uh, likeness of, of the practices is evident when, with the koan, what is this? Sometimes we turn that around and, and put it, this, what is it? Or even just this, with the question mark. Or just the question mark. Just the intense investigation. Conceptless investigation. So perhaps that can help us to understand Yasutani Roshi's use of the word tension in the sense of tautness or or alertness. Somewhere else I read uh, somebody instructing um, people on Shikantaza saying you should, you should um, look as if you were surprised. Some people may have had the experience of, of, of waking up in the middle of the night and hearing a noise which seems to be coming from inside the house. And how how quickly we'll we'll wake up and be really alert. Upright, taut. Vigilant. To bring that kind of uh, acute focus to whatever is happening in, in this moment. Continuing with Yasutani's introduction. Although utterly unaware of what Buddhism or Zen is, Flora Courtois attained enlightenment by herself through her unrelenting struggle with the question, what is reality? Um, as we could say that this 
was her her natural koan. We have all these other koans which which we use in order to to channel all our questions, but um, if we have a natural koan like this, then um, that process has already begun with it. This is called having no teacher, enlightenment by oneself alone, which is the same sort of satori that Shakyamuni Buddha attained as he saw the dawn star on December the 8th. Actually, he did, he did have teachers earlier on, the, the, the best teachers of the day, but um, then had his thorough awakening um, on his own. The true enlightenment of Buddhism is said to realize the original self. It is common to all true enlightenment, regardless of race or country or time. Such enlightenment is not at all exclusive to a particular religion. It is quite certain that everyone may attain Kensho, as Mrs. Courtois did, if only each would pursue wholeheartedly the search for the original self. However, due to inadequate faith and effort, few attain such Kensho. The, um, the, the need for, for strong faith is especially emphasized with um, Shikantaza. Yasutani Roshi says, In order to do Shikantaza, first of all, it is very important to have a firm faith or belief. Just as in koan study, it is really generally very important to have questioning, so in the practice of Shikantaza, faith is required. Faith, in fact, that all sentient beings are originally Buddhas. Dogen Zenji says in the ninth chapter of Gakudo Yojinshu, Precautions, Precautions on Learning the Way, you should practice along with the way. Those who believe in the Buddha way must believe in the fact that their own self is in the midst of the way from the beginning, so that there is no confusion, no delusion, no distorted viewpoint, no increase or decrease and no errors. To have such faith and to understand such a way and practice in accordance with it is the very fundamental aspect of learning the way. You should try to cut off the root of consciousness by sitting. Eight, even nine out of ten will be able to see the way suddenly. This is the key to practicing shikantaza. Actually, we could understand as faith and doubt being two sides of one coin. You could say that the, the emphasis in Shikantaza is on faith because we sit, we sit without any, any striving to arrive somewhere. We sit in the understanding that, that we've already arrived. And that, that understanding informs our ability to be uh, 
non-reactive to whatever arises as we're sitting. We just fully uh, open ourselves to whatever comes and shine that light, that, that intense looking onto whatever arises. But the, the doubt, you could say the doubt is there too in the sense of this looking, this intense looking. With koan work, the emphasis is on the questioning, the perplexity. And yet, with koans too, there has to be faith in order to keep going through all the difficulties that we have in the search, all the frustrations. Faith and doubt together give rise to strong determination. These are considered to be the three essential elements of Zen. Great faith, great doubt, great determination. Throughout the world there must be others who, like Flora Courtois, attain Kensho alone. Unfortunately, it is very difficult for them to meet a qualified teacher who can examine the so-called Kensho experiences and verify whether they are genuine or not, or deep or shallow. Consequently, a true experience is often buried and unrevealed. Further, Kensho is the only is only the first discovery of the original self, that is, only a beginning. To deepen and clarify it, to establish its full function in everyday life, requires never-ending practice. Again, it is even more difficult to meet a teacher able to guide one along this post-Kensho path. Therefore, among these rare Kensho flowers that bloom alone in the world, many must die without bearing ripened fruit. It's a beautiful image and, and the one that helps to clarify um, what Kensho is. To, to think of it as, as this blooming of this rare flower. But that we have to keep practicing beyond that blooming of this, this delicate, beautiful flower into um, ripening its, the flower into fruit. into enlightened activity in the world. Yasutani Roshi continues, I sincerely hope that more persons will appear on this earth who will so resolutely plunge into themselves as to realize the original true self. Fortunately, Zen, which has been directly and accurately transmitted from the honored one, Shakyamuni Buddha, to this day in Japan and in recent years has traveled west to take root in American soil. To all those involved both in Japan and America, I urge that you be diligent in your practice so that you may penetrate to clear Kensho and afterwards ever deepen your enlightenment. With firm confidence, I recommend this practice of Zen, not only so that each of you will gain peace and wisdom, but also so that peace and reconciliation for all mankind will follow as a natural consequence. That's the end of his, his um, 
introduction. Just one comment to, to finish up with here um, around his, his statement about not only practicing not only so that we ourselves gain peace and wisdom, but also so that peace and reconciliation for all mankind follow as a natural consequence. And I said something something similar in the uh, opening words of the Sashin um, last night, but then was, was kind of um, um, dissatisfied with, with that. Um, because it's it, it's it's not just um, it's not just that we have to to um, train ourselves on the mat, and then if we we experience more peace and wisdom ourselves, that somehow we'll, we'll, we'll filter through to others. But, but that we have to train ourselves post-Kensho in, in realizing our enlightenment in our relationships. This has so, been so clear lately with, with the pandemic and, of course, with climate change, that um, collective solutions are necessary. Um, there's that um, saying of Einstein's, we cannot solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. Of course, of course, um, the world will, won't change unless our minds change. But if we if we um, if we just limit ourselves to to um, changing our minds, that won't help either. We have to address structural problems. Problems that are embedded in our uh, our institutions, racism, sexism. It's not easy to make these changes, but but it's an important part of our activity as as uh, at least aspirational bodhisattvas. Time is up, and uh, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>